Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Interpol. I'm Carlos from Interpol. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. There's a musical called Tick, Tick, Boom, which if you're a, I don't know, if you're a regular Triple R listener, you may immediately think of uh, a song by Swedish rock band The Hives, but nothing to do with that. Tick, Tick, Boom is a musical that originally began as a solo show uh, by American composer Jonathan Larson, best known for the musical Rent. It's an earlier work of his and a very autobiographical work about him trying to establish himself in theatre and music theatre. Uh, there is a production of Tick, Tick, Boom opening next week at Chapel off Chapel. Joining us in the studio to tell us a little bit more uh, is uh, Luigi Lucente. Welcome to Triple R. Or good welcome morning, back. Richard. Thank you. I Thank you. Say. It's good to be back chatting. Yeah. Um, chatting this this great work that I'm involved in. Well, because last time you were in, I think you were, we were talking about serial ki- well, not serial killers, but thrill killers. It, it, it was quite a, a dark work. That was um, Parade, which is quite a, a macabre musical theatre. This is something a little uh, less. Um, Violent, I would say, but still nonetheless particularly potent, I think. Yeah. Well, particularly that, uh, given that uh, Larson died kind of uh, at a relatively young age. He did. He, he kind of left us um, on, the, on the eve of his great success being Rent. He, he died the night of the first preview before it was set to open of a you know, aneurysm which was um, later deemed as a result of undiagnosed Marfan syndrome. So, yeah, essentially Rent went on to become a huge global success and um you know beyond those years people were kind of asking well what else did Jonathan Larson give us what else did he leave us anything else behind and then that allowed for this kind of lesser known work that he originally performed Tick Tick Boom to kind of become um developed for the Broadway stage and then it was first performed as as it is in its um current form in 2001. Is it a good work in and of its own right or is it performed just because it's by the creator of Rent and people go, well, it, it's worthy, but maybe it, it, it's a juvenile work? That's or- a really good question. I think it's a fantastic work in its own right um, because what it is, it's, it's a deeply personal show. It's what we meet is Jonathan on the eve of his 30th birthday, questioning his life choices, his struggles as, um, you know, as an, as an up-and-coming writer without much success. We see his best friend and his roommate... Um, who's, who was an actor who sold out and is now making it big in, in market research. We see his girlfriend who wants to start a family and wants other things. And so it's this melting pot of, you know, questions and anxiety and, you know, bittersweet highs and lows taking place on the eve of that 30th birthday, which was, you know, in 1990. So that's the whole... Those are the looming tick tick booms that that he talks about in the show, and and I guess he was this quite new, neurotic Jewish character, a bit Woody Allen esque, quite fastidious and obsessive with his writing, and he was that he was the epitome of that Bohemian cliche that we look at now and go, oh wow, that's that's the that's the East Village of you know Rent, but that that was him, that was his life, that was the way he lived. He lived in poverty. He worked a a very menial small job at a diner just to make enough money to pay his rent, and that that was it. He spent all of his other time composing and writing. writing, Yeah. Yeah. Um, In terms of the the history of the show, as I said, it it began as a solo piece and has grown with other characters being added. And and obviously, yeah, it was it was first performed with Jonathan himself and, and a rock band he kind of thought of the show as being this this rock opera um you know quite quite big and, and theatrical but in um 
in that one-man sense. And then it was developed for Broadway with two other actors, so it was a three-person show. And in our particular version, we've um, extrapolated it slightly larger to add another additional two actors. So there's actually five actors plus the, the four band members. I like the way that it, it's grown in the same way that, say, something like Hedwig and the Angry Inch has grown. started exactly. out, again, one performer with a band telling a story, singing songs and slowly taking on this richer life of its own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of performing it, what is it about the music and the, the songs in this particular work that um, make you as a, as a performer really want to sink your teeth into them? I really like, obviously, there's that energy... Um, and it, it, it's rock and roll and, and grunge kind of roots. That's what Jonathan was all about as a composer, into bringing the contemporary or the, uh, the, you know, the sound of the times into the theatre um, catalogue. And so what I love about it is that he's able to combine those musical styles that we associate in, in pop music and rock music into his scores. And he was a real pioneer in, in doing so and, you know, went on to become, you know, a huge success and, and a real maverick in terms of paving the way for future shows. So in Tick, Tick, Boom, we see the early seeds of that um, development and his individual style coming through. And, you know, he wrote incredible music, um, from from pop to to country, it, it all feels very familiar. Even though you know we don't know the songs, he had a really great commercial ear. Now, given that it was he started writing it in 1990, and mm-hmm. obviously as we've said, since been further developed. Pop music dates quite quickly sometimes. Yeah. There are some timeless pop of gems, course. but others that we just go, God, that sounds so 90s. Yeah. Um, has the music in this dated? and Or alternatively, is the fact that it keeps being tweaked and reworked refreshing it? Well, I think in our particular production, we've, we've attempted to, to just make minor adjustments to the orchestrations in order for it to make it feel um, quite current still. But I feel like the, the songs are... are such strong compositions in their own right that a lot hasn't had to be done. We've almost just bumped them out a bit with um, adding extra harmonies and some more instrumentation just to make it feel like it's... um to, to immerse the audience in the energy of, of the score. So it doesn't feel like so much we're watching a theatre show, but we're actually involved in you know his apartment, in his loft, as he's creating this music. And not just involved in his loft as he's creating his music, but as he's kind of... He and his friends are having... kind of It wouldn't be uh, a musical without some kind of drama. Absolutely. So it's not just about the angst of being a struggling musician no, or a struggling writer. Yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing him hit like a pinball machine across all the different facets of his life. We're seeing, you know, his parents are calling him saying, why aren't you a success? He's, he's, he's conversation, bittersweet conversations with his agent who hasn't called, returned his calls in six months. You know, his girlfriend of two years wants to move to Cape Cod and settle down. So he, he's kind of being hit by such a whirlwind of distraction and then through that is attempting to stay on track as an artist. It's... Um, it's something that I think all creative people, and particularly with the whole, you know, turning 30 um, time bomb, it's, it's still so particularly potent. And I would imagine also potent for anybody who's a fan of Rent. Absolutely. Um, will be able to come to this and will they hear kind of echoes or, or not echoes, foreshadowings or preludes? Definitely. Or both def- in terms of narrative and music. Most definitely. Jonathan was... He, he was such a personal writer and, you know, his life and the people around him and his community was, was, were really the catalyst of um, his work. 
And so within Tick, Tick, Boom, we see kind of the seeds of the types of um, themes and messages that he would later develop as Rent and also his... um, his flavour and, and the colours that he would bring to, to the world of um, of his compositions. So, um, you know, he, he talks about, want, in Tick, Tick, Boom, wanting to write the hair of the 90s, the cultural revolution, and that's what later Rent was actually billed as, the hair of the 90s. It, it was, um, you know, that lightning rod of, of energy that did revoli- revolutionise the Broadway stage. If you would like to get along and see Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom, it's on at Chapel Off Chapel from next week, from the 21st of May. Uh, sorry, from the 21st of April through until the 1st of May. Uh, Chapel Off Chapel in Paran. Um, uh, and you can jump online, find out a bit more info at chapeloffchapel.com.au. Uh, Luigi, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. And I hope uh, the, the, the production is a great success. Cheers, thanks so much. Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Minipore. I'm Carlos from Minipore. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> and keep independent radio alive and kicking in Melbourne so that this program, for example, can exist and support art forms and artists and film festivals, such as the Spanish Film Festival, which kicked off last night at the Astor Theatre uh, and is running through until the 1st of May here in Melbourne. It's a, a film festival that travels the country in legs, jumping from city to city, overlapping. Uh, and so the jet-setting festival director, Genevieve Kelly, joins us in the studio now. Hola. Hola. Thanks for having me, Richard. <laughs> My very great pleasure. How was opening night? Uh, it was excellent, actually. Um, it's such a beautiful venue um, there at the Astor, and not long ago they um, we celebrated their 80th birthday, so um, 80 years, and it just looks... Um, it's such a, a glamorous venue to celebrate something at. That was our first opening night that we've had yeah. there for the Spanish Film Festival. So She's um, a grand old dame, that, that cinema. Is, yeah. Yes. So... Uh, the festival itself, as one of the things that fascinates me about some of the different film festivals that, that run around the country, um, the Greek Film Festival, there's a lot of Greek-speaking people in Melbourne. We know that, that it, I think it's the second or the third largest kind of Greek-speaking city outside of Athens. Uh, the Italian Film Festival, there's the French Film Festival, everybody, there's a lot of Francophiles out there. But when I first thought, oh, a Spanish Film Festival, I was like, how many Spanish people are there in Melbourne? And then I paused and went, well, there's not just Spanish people there's spanish speaking people and kind of a whole communities that respond to that because and that's what the festival does doesn't it it's not just about films from spain no it's um it's definitely um always been a spanish language um cinema and uh, film festival but i think that it just um you know the to open up the the market to um to have films from latin america as well um it's it's sort of like well why not I mean there are so many amazing films and so many incredible co-productions I think between Spain and Latin America um, and uh, so there has always been that kind of Latin contingency and you know when you when you think about uh, the community um, extended community in that respect it's like you know don't even ask me that question I don't know how many there are all all together but um, I think that. This festival, um, a little bit for, for me, like the French and the Italian, which are also um, really quite big in the Spanish, has, has been growing um, so, so fast over the past three years um, especially. Um, the, the appeal just seems to be much, much broader than that 
community. Um, it's it's just extended. I think the appeal of kind of you know that that the passion and the, the the sexiness of of Spaniards and and Latin Americans and that um, and that kind of uh, you know brashness of emotion. Um, it really appeals to um, to just really anyone, I think. Well, speaking <laughs> yeah. of the sexiness of the yeah. Spanish and uh, and uh, Latin Americans. Gail Garcia Bernal is in a film, so uh, kind of like swoon-worthy already. Clearly. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that you chose me. I think some other people would say Penelope Cruz, but, you know, it depends on your perspective, I guess. Um, and um, uh, he is. He's he's uh, great in this um, Argentinian film uh, directed by Pablo Aguero, and um, it's called Eva Doesn't Sleep, and it's about the um, the transportation of the embalmed body of um, the... Eva Perón. Eva Perón. Um, yeah, so uh, it's... It's a really interesting kind of uh, look at the at the political upheaval at the time, and um, and just the incredible influence that she had even after she had passed away. Yeah, so uh, he's he actually plays quite a creepy character in it. So <laughs> now, in terms of representing uh, contemporary cinema, how important is it that the films be fresh, be sharp, and of the moment, so that they can be, I guess, responding to some of the issues that are going on in the world? Absolutely, and it's it's one of the core driving forces behind the program i think um with uh, it, as well as having a, a balance of of different genres to make sure that you know we're covering everyone's different tastes um i think that uh, really keeping in touch with the as con- keeping the films as contemporary as they can um i really only select films from the past 18 months um unless we're doing kind of a retrospective or um you know something like that uh but um keeping them fresh and a lot of the films are very reflective of what's happening um or what has happened in spain you know in recent times there's films um involving the economic crisis and um and uh yeah and then just you know creatively kind of having films with new themes and um and uh and yeah it's it's extremely important it's definitely one of the driving forces behind uh, selecting the films in terms of films that are responding to the the european financial crisis a ticket to your life is a particularly interesting one i guess given it, its local flavor yes exactly it's it is a locally um made documentary um and uh we're really lucky to have um the the director and the producer coming down, uh, flying down from Sydney to to participate in a Q and A, um, and it's about uh, Spanish younger Spanish immigrants coming to Australia. Um, in search of new opportunities, I guess um, the unemployment rate in Spain is so high still. Um, so young people are just, you know, they they do come. There are a lot of Spaniards coming to Australia looking for um for who have you know so so many skills and they just c- cannot get anything in Spain in terms of work and um and so uh, it's interesting because it 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 is a story about them but then it also brings in the older generation of Spaniards and kind of parallels uh, their experiences with Australia and all each of the characters have such different responses to our country um, and it's yeah it's it's quite interesting to see how they how they how they respond um, seeing our country from someone through someone else's eyes really yeah, yeah. when you're programming a festival obviously you're you're looking for unique films that will appeal to different demographics as well as strong films that will have 
perhaps universal appeal. I love the fact that there's a football film in there this year. Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, for, for me, last year actually we had a film called Messi and it was a documentary directed by Alex De La Iglesia who's quite, kind of well known for just... Um, he's got a film called My Big Night in the festival this year. He directs really, really crazy, outrageous um, productions usually, um, you know, completely fictional. Um, the production values in them are very high. We had his film was a closing night film a couple a few years ago called a few years ago called Witching and Bitching, um, which was just outrageous. Like it was a complete ride about um, you know these are these witches in um, in in the Basque country of Spain, um, but. He directed this film called Messi last year, which was a, a documentary literally about Lionel Messi. And um, and I, as as well, kind of looked at it. I said, okay, well, I'm not necessarily a soccer fan, but um, I'm sure that there is definitely a market out there. You know, that they're thinking definitely the, the, Latin, the Latin Americans and the Spaniards are crazy about, about soccer. Um, and it just... It absolutely exploded, and so when I saw Barca Dreams, um, you know, as as a, as a documentary this year about Barcelona Football Club, um, for me, as not not that much of a soccer fan, I I actually found it really interesting because it kind of it charts the success um, and the really inspirational kind of you know players that are, that are involved in this this football club, which is one of the most you know one of the best in the world. I think some people might argue with me, but <laughs> don't shoot me. Um, and um, and and it's just um it was interest even more interesting for me because it um it very much charts it in in the way that the politics of of um Spain uh, also helped it to evolve and, and made it what it is today and um so there's kind of that political um uh, I guess a, a side to it as well, um, and and historical kind of value, which I found really interesting as well as you know the inspiring kind of story of all the different players and the managers, and you know Messi is in there as well. So yeah, yeah, um, I think that it will do really well. We've got a special event happening at Palace Cinema Como with it on Sunday afternoon, where we'll do some Alhambra beer and Torres wines, and um, and Simon Palomares, who's a local Spanish comedian and soccer enthusiast expert will be doing a bit of an introduction beforehand which I'm, I'm sure will be very enlightening and entertaining. Now also uh, screening there's a, a collection of short films as well which is great because short films we often don't get to see them except at film festivals. Yes and um, actually I have wanted to do this for quite um, for at least a couple of years and um, you know you've, there are so many short films out there and and there's so many feature films to get through. I've kind of just really run out of time to... But this year I was sort of... I really, really wanted to make it happen and I, and I watched a whole slate of different short films from different agents and um, and was thinking about ways to kind of curate them. And um, I don't know, I think I think I might have just, you know, seen seen a poster for Parisian Tem or something and, and thought, God, that is such a... You know, there were so many short films that I had seen uh, that were based around kind of romance and heartbreak and that kind of idea. Um, and uh, and so I thought that's that's how I'll kind of, you know, bunch them together for this year, I think, you know, select some of those best ones. But, um, so, uh, yeah, there are, there are eight short films, new short films from Spain and one from Mexico. Um, as I said, kind of charting romance and heartbreak in the modern age, I guess. I think a little bit more heartbreak. <laughs> I think I was a bit blacker than I thought that I, <laughs> that I was. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, it, they're, they're really entertaining and it's a really, it's a really nice selection um, of... Uh, and to get a taste, you 
you know, there's a lot of new, really um, amazing new filmmakers out there who start off in short films. So, um, so you know, it's it's great to be able to bring some of that talent out there, and hopefully, you know, next year or the year after, we might see a feature. Um, we have a special guest this year. His name's Daniel Guzman. I'm sure you were going to start talking about him, and um, he's he has a film called Nothing in Return, which just won him the. Um, it's his first feature film, and he just won the Goya Award for Best New Director, um, and the Goya is the equivalent of the Spanish Academy Awards. And um, two years ago, he won the Goya for Best Short Film, and that was his first film. Yeah. Um, he's been acting since he was about fourteen, so he's he, a stranger. This is uh, the film is basically an autobiographical autobiographical piece for, about his life on the streets as a teenager, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, he it, was on Breakfasters this morning. He right? was. He was speaking earlier. Um, uh, unfortunately, I missed it, so um, you know, I'm hoping that it went well. But um, he uh, he has a lot of passion um, about this film, and um, you know, he's really excited to be out here presenting it. And um, it's it is just a, a he's presented a great coming of age kind of story and you can see how his heart and soul has has um been invested in it his um grandmother actually stars in the film um as this uh this old woman who drives along in this rickety truck and um, collects uh, discarded furniture off the street and resells it in a, in a market stall and he takes the boy who has who is um, you know Daniel's kind of reincarnation I guess who also who won best new actor at the Goya oh, Awards yeah so yeah. he's he puts up an incredible performance um, and and anyway this old woman takes him under her wing and um, you know kind of is uh, is a bit of a mentor to him I guess in a, a more wholesome he's she's one of the more wholesome some friends that he makes on the street um but you know he's it's full of bad decisions but at, at his at his core he's a, he's a really good person and so the whole time in the film you know you're really you're really vouching for him to to um to make it through uh his um his troubled adolescence i guess but uh daniel will be um the director daniel guzman he's he's here and going to be doing a q a uh screening for his film um on friday at palace cinema como the screenings at 6 and the film's called Nothing in Return. We're talking about the 2016 Spanish Film Festival presented by Palace Films and there's a broad range of filmic styles in there. You can have drama and I'm sure there will be some quite dramatic moments. There's romance, there's comedy, there's thriller. Spain seems to do thrillers very well. They do. Uh, and it's not just films from Spain, there's films from Argentina, Chile, Mexico and a closing night film from Colombia. Wow, this film is one of the most incredibly cinematic experiences I've ever had in my life. It's um, wow, that's high praise. It's it's incredible. It to- it took my breath away, and um, I I felt really lucky because I I watched it um with the with the national festivals director um Alicia Zekler. We watched it in um the Astor by ourselves um one day a little while ago, and um we were both just completely just gobsmacked by it. Uh, director Cyril Guerra has um it, it's won a, a whole slate of awards, including awards at Cannes Film Festival. Um, it really took Cannes Film Festival by storm, and um, and it also um, was nominated for the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film this year. As not many films get uh, get nominated for that, so it's it's really um, has the critical acclaim behind it. And I can tell you, it's um it's this amazing kind of uh, odyssey, cinematic odyssey through the Amazon jungle with this um you know German scientist explore these German scientist explorers trying to um in search of this flower which 
which is said to be extinct, but it says um, they say that it had really rare healing properties, and um, they kind of encounter this uh, this tribal shaman. Uh, leader who promises to help them find it and and just the journey that they have along the way is is so immersive and um it absolutely demands to be seen on the big screen um you just can't miss it 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 would be such a shame to watch it on anything other than um well i would say definitely go to the astor theater to see it on on the first of may yeah the the huge screen yes on the really big screen but it's showing at all of the venues for closing night so um yeah the Spanish Film Festival is showing at the Astor Theatre, the Palace Cinema Como, Kino Cinemas and Palace Westgarth. So no matter where you live in Melbourne, there's hopefully uh, a cinema somewhere that you can get to uh, to get to see the films at the festival, which is on now. Uh, kicked off last night, running through until Sunday, the 1st of May. Full program details at www.spanishfilmfestival.com or you can pick up a copy of the brochure from your local cafe, bookstore, kind of uh, laundromat, perhaps, wherever uh, brochures are distributed. Uh, and uh, we've been talking to the director of the Spanish Film Festival, Genevieve Kelly. Thanks heaps for coming in. Thanks for having me, Richard. Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Minipol. I'm Carlos from Minipol. This is Martha Wayne. I'm Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Romeo and Juliet, people seem to think it's this hugely romantic story, but it's an awful bloody tragedy as well. So uh, to talk to us about this great conundrum, Peter Evans, the uh, Artistic Director of Bell Shakespeare and Director of the current production of Romeo and Juliet, joins us in the studio. And Romeo, Alex Williams, welcome to you both. Thank you, Richard. So what... let's, Let's talk about this strange kind of like the, the, the directions that the play is pulling itself in. Because I think of tragedy um, and I think of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth and rending of veils. I, mm. I don't think necessary, necessarily of the, the first flower of young love. So is this why Romeo and Juliet is so successful? Because it is mm. makes us weep and makes us delight at the same time? I think you raise a really good point because in a, in a classical sense, it's, it's kind of not a tragedy, is, is that it's a, it's a tragedy of mistakes. It's actually about accidents and we can, um, we can trace um, the tragedy back to this feud between the Montagues and the Capulets, but actually what happens in the play um, over this intense four days is a series of mistakes and really a couple of young people who feel like they have no choices. Um, I think that's one of the ways that uh, we find our way into it. Um, it's interesting you're playing a track um, called Cadaver because I think this play also has one of the saddest lines in all Shakespeare, which is, um, thy lips are warm, that Juliet says when she kisses Romeo after he's died and she realises that he's dead but only just very sad. It is. Now, um, Alex, uh, talk to us about the appeal for you as an actor of, of playing Romeo, and I might get you to move a little bit closer to, closer to the mic before you speak. What is it about the character that appeals? Uh, it's a role I've always wanted to, um, always wanted to play. I, p- I played it when I was younger, and, um, and there's, there's just a, there's a lot of... Uh, one, doing uh, theatre and, and Shakespeare, it's such beautiful language um, and storytelling to work with. Um, but playing a role uh, that is sort of based around 
um, youth and mm. emotion and um, still a fair amount of intellect and the connection between two people coming together, not only what I really like about uh, when he first sees her and this idea of love at first sight. He sees her and he talks about how beautiful she is and how how he needs to go over and talk to her. But it's only when he goes over to her and they connect um, and their minds connect that, that, that he actually falls in love with her. And I think that there's... Even that separation between those two speeches is a really nice thing being said there. Well, because Romeo, to my mind, is a bit fickle because has, hasn't he just been in passionately and madly in love with <laughs> someone else until just recently? Aren't we all a little bit? Yeah, um, yeah he, I mean, it, it can be seen as, as, as fickle. I think the difference is um, of an idea of love. I mean, he's never really um, met Rosaline. He, he sees her from afar. It's something, it's, something, it's an admiration mm-hmm. rather than, uh, than a connection, a, tr- a true connection that he has with Juliet in, through, through the sonnet. Um, that they share together the first time they they they, uh, they talk to each other, and then the balcony scene. That, it grows. It's not just this snap, you know, love. It, and I it, think that's in, I think that's really interesting that Shakespeare does that. That he allows us to see somebody who's infatuated. He doesn't make it purely romantic. And in fact, spending more time with the play, you realise how um, what Shakespeare puts lots of obstacles in their way, and Romeo very definitely is infatuated and and. And then it is a intellectual connection when they first meet, and then the balcony scene is an astonishing piece of writing because it isn't all just um, uh, flour and uh, flowers and sugar. It's actually two people having a proper conversation and really delighting in each other's smarts because they're both very bright and they like to play linguistic games. And it's that connection that they fall in love. Yeah. Now. Peter, this is your first uh, production for the company as the the new artistic director, and one of the things you've done you've done something somewhat radical for, by Bell Shakespeare standards. Yeah. Normally, Bell Shakespeare uh, productions, people are used to seeing them performed in modern dress. Yeah. Uh, you've turned the clock back, mm. so it's not quite that uh, Alex is performing in tights. Mm. Um, uh, he is, I think, that you're performing in denim, but you have a medieval kind of style costume. Pretty skinny jeans, yeah. yeah. They're very tight jeans, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so why... Go for the the more traditional, the period look. Well, uh, well, Bell, of course, has spent twenty five years making um, things. Not entirely, but mostly, it's contemporary, and certainly that's the Shakespeare that I've always done has been completely contemporary. However, it occurred to me when I was working at the Melbourne Theatre Company some years ago, I was talking to some of my younger colleagues um, who, at the time, were in their twenties, and they were talking about never having seen period Shakespeare, and 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 they were really interested in costume and really interested in a, in a parallel universe and looking at these plays through a lens, um, through an Elizabethan lens, and it occurred to me that maybe that is something that's different now. And, and then I thought, well, if I was going to do that, then what play would I do it with? And, and it felt that Romeo and Juliet was a good one um, to try. Um, and then being my first one as um, sole artistic director, I thought that would also surprise people that might be thinking that we would go even further um, into a contemporary world. And it's certainly done that, and it's been really interesting. But I would suggest that actually it's been the younger audiences, that our, that our younger audiences have really taken to it and we've really noticed in the audience and a huge under-30 take-up with our tickets has been massive, is that, is that the Gen Y particularly have really um, taken it on and, and really enjoyed it. That said, it isn't, it isn't a historical recreation. We haven't made something that, that's old-fashioned. It still sits in a, in a very sort 
sort of meta-theatrical world and I see it as still very contemporary. However, we've been able to have our cake and eat it too by um, having these amazing costumes made for us and, and it's very, you know, very beautiful and, um, uh, and romantic in that way. Uh, and a shout-out to uh, some of the creatives in the show uh, and accordingly who's done the, the costumes and uh, uh, Kelly Ryle who's doing uh, sound as well. That's right, yeah. that's right, who I've worked with many, many times over the years and, um, and particularly in Melbourne. Um, uh, and then we've got Ben Sistern who's been doing um, the lighting who's mainly been, done a lot of dance, yeah. um, some theatre, but a lot of, um, I think, Chunky and, um, and Sydney dance and some ballet too. And that's been interesting because one of the things we're doing in the play is often trying to get a sense of what candlelight is like. So for a Shakespeare play it's very low lit which has um, been very beautiful and very interesting and, and particularly because our home here is in the Fairfax which is a great theatre for text and for Shakespeare because the audience is really on three sides and it's quite intimate and the actor is really in three dimensions and so um, having this uh, low light in that venue is looking really good. Um, Alex, people who are coming to see the show might be more familiar with you from your TV work. Um, uh, do you think that's why you were cast? Because you're you, uh, stunt casting that, that brings in the kids? Or do you think you're cast because you're a good actor? <laughs> I have definitely not done enough TV to, uh, for it to be stunt casting, I hope. Um, no, I think um, that was an interesting story, actually. I hadn't done any theatre since graduating drama school where I, I did a lot and... Um, and it was something that I really wanted to do. It wasn't for lack of trying, I can tell you that much. But, um, yeah, I, I auditioned uh, for Peter the year before, I think, for another role and um, really really wanted to work for the company. And, um, and I think I went in for that role and he said, what was your sort of connection uh, with Shakespeare? What have you done? Blah, blah, blah. And I sort of said... I haven't, and I really want to do Romeo and Juliet. He goes, you know, you're not auditioning for that, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's a good point. You make a good point. Uh, it's valid. Uh, but then the next year when, when they, I found out they were um, doing Romeo and Juliet, I sort of walked in and went, OK, got a crack now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been fantastic. It's a, it's a completely different discipline. Um, Tell us about adapting to the Shakespearean language, to its rhythm, its tone, uh, the the archaic nature of some of the language as well. Has that been a challenge, or is it, and has it been a, uh, a a difficult challenge or a delightful one? I've found it quite a delight, to be honest. It's it's really nice, you know. It's it's about working in different frames. I think um, you're always searching for truth in in. I, I think, um, and whether you're doing it with a, with, a, with a frame that's really close up, or whether you're you're doing it to hit the back of the theatre, I think you're, you're still searching for truth. But it's it's fun to kind of get out of your skin and mm. get off a set, and uh, you know actually be able to move. Like I, I've I've always loved um, the physicality of of acting, and so with this play, having this amazing set um, designed by and accordingly, where it's it, it is a you know a theatre within a theatre, and then and then we've got a lot of scaffolding and and um, these beautiful swords and costumes. You can just sort of go nuts, and 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 having the license to do so um, from from Peter has been has been great. Now I've had designers tell me in the past complain about actors because they go, I li- I like the set beautifully, and then they never hit their mark. They decide this night to wander this way and wander that oh, way. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, for is stage acting, does it allow you to be more physical and perhaps more experimental with your acting than TV, for example, where you've just got to hit a mark, stand in front of this camera at this time, shoot this short scene, reshoot it and then do something else? 
Yeah, I do think, you know, in, in TV film work, you, you are, you, you have to hit a mark just because the focus puller is, is doing that. But I don't think that your performance needs to be the same every time and it's the same in theatre. Um, you know, you have to hit certain areas because there's a sword fight. You, you've got to do it, otherwise you're going to get hit in the face. Um, so there is that. And, you, you know, you don't want to let your other actors down. I mean, you do want to surprise them um, from time to time, keep, keep things fresh. And I think that's, that's the fun thing about doing a play 72 times is that you, you continue to evolve. You continue to get hopefully get better or, or find new things um, and surprise other people and and get surprised um and that's that's been the real gift of 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 doing doing a play like this especially such great work and great people peter in terms of to pick up that notion of uh something continuing to evolve um one of the uh facebook videos that i see regularly popping up every year or two uh is the a video from the uk of somebody doing shakespeare in received pronunciation as we hear it mostly now Mm. and then trying to reconstruct original pronunciation Mm. to talk in uh, shakespeare the way it would have sounded in shakespeare's day have you ever been tempted to mount a production entirely in original pronunciation no uh, no i haven't but i'm really fascinated by it because it's 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 it kind of puts paid to this whole idea about um uh about the way it should be spoken in a way we still fight against this victorian and and a kind of mid 20th century kind of idea. Proper. yeah the received pronunciation couldn't be further from the what shakespeare was writing for and the and the voices he was writing for and so when 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 people do hear you know we proud do it with with Australian accents or whatever accent the actor comes um, with, um, and it absolutely uh, I think benefits from a more robust that not being stilted and not being constrained. That sometimes that received pronunciation is incredibly uptight, and that's not the voice that Shakespeare was writing for. Um, I mean, people often talk about that that actually uh, the American accent is probably closer um, to to what to what Shakespeare. Shakespeare was writing for than than the received pronunciation. Um, so, but our job as an Australian company is is to have the Australian voice and to and and really as we um, have more and more diverse cast to encourage people to bring whatever accent they want to the work. Now, uh, also in terms of uh, the company evolving, I did just want to quickly acknowledge that Bell Shakespeare is getting a permanent new home um, yeah. in Sydney. Uh, I read a few weeks ago uh, a million bucks have come the company's way. So, uh, what is what will having a new home mean for the company? Well, for the so we're going into um, Pier Two Three, which is um, one of the Finger Wharfs. Um, it sits alongside where the Sydney Theatre Company is at the moment, and we're sharing that space with the ACO and with ATYP. And so, what that gives us is for the first time we have offices and rehearsal space and a small workshop all under one roof um, which the company's never had but also we're going to get a small studio theatre in there so we'll have a 200 seat theatre which I think particularly for our education work will mean that we can run many more projects there but also some of our new writing work that we've been exploring over the years uh, we may be able to do in there. It really is still an engine room that we're a national company and so it won't change the fact that all our shows tour and that we will be in Melbourne as much as we are in Sydney and in Perth and then our regional tour is extensive these days um, so it's an engine room to, to, to move out but to be all under one roof and to have that little studio and to have a proper rehearsal room will mean an awful lot to us. Great. Um, Alex 
In terms of uh, your work with the company, obviously this season of Romeo and Juliet started in Sydney, it's now done Canberra. Uh, it's uh, on in Melbourne from tonight through until the 1st of May and then that's the end of the season. What's mm-hmm. next for you? Do you hope to keep working with the company on, on further productions or uh, what will you be doing next? Oh, look, if they'll have me, yeah, I'd love to keep doing it. It's a fantastic... Um, but, you know, you, you, I think you probably... Um, you, you, they want to keep working with with new and, and different people, and then within a couple of years, you'd hopefully come back and you've made a, you know, you've made a good enough impression that they, they want to hire you again. Um, I'm off to do uh, Tartuffe over in at Black Swan Theatre Company and QTC, um, which is a Moliere, um, which I'm really looking forward to doing more sort of classical work, and I think this is a good a good start. Um, and hopefully it will uh, influence my work there as well. So, yeah, I mean, doing as much theatre as possible, I think, is always good for an actor. I mean, it's, it's where you really grow. It's really where you grow your craft. So um, the more, the better. Uh, well, good luck with that. And say hello to Kate Cherry for me when, you, uh, when you're over in Perth. Um, Bell Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet on at the Fairfax Studio Arts Centre Melbourne from tonight through until the 1st of May. Uh, you can uh, book at artscentremelbourne.com.au or by calling 1300 182 183. And you can find out more information about the production and the company at bellshakespeare.com.au. Peter Evans, Alex Williams, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank, thank you very much. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live-to-air performances, documentaries and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.